0: Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 17 The End of the World. Today I'm interviewing my friend D.D. Dee Dee Warren, host of the Preterist podcast, to discuss the claim made by skeptics of Christianity that Jesus was a false prophet, and we'll also look at how a proper understanding of Bible prophecy powerfully answers that claim. Before we get into the interview, though, I just want to quickly say a word of thanks to all of you listeners out there, both those of you who subscribe and listen to every episode, as well as those who <laughs> tune in only to those episodes in which I interview um, guests more interesting than I am. When I started this podcast, I certainly daydreamed of having many listeners, but, you know, I don't think I ever really anticipated it growing to any substantial size. That's not to say there are a tons of you out there, but those episodes in which I don't interview someone have been downloaded on the order of a hundred times or so which ain't bad. (laughs) Even taking into account a few stragglers here and there, those who subscribe but only listen to some of the episodes, and those who've used a player at the website to play an episode more than once, uh, as well as, you know, perhaps a few other anomalies, this suggests to me that I've got maybe 75 regular listeners or so, which really is a lot for a no-name average Joe brand new to podcasting. I guess I'm saying it really does touch my heart that any of you, let alone approaching a hundred of you, find me worth listening to. And when episodes are downloaded many more times than that because of the guests I interview, (laughs) that means a lot to me, too. So to all of you, thank you so much for listening. It really blesses my heart. Now, next in my promo rotation is R.C. Sproul's Renewing Your Mind podcast. Stay tuned. Renewing Your Mind with Dr. R.C. Sproul is next. And our quorum Deo thought for today. Let me say to you, dear friends you may not want Christ. You may not want to be bothered with religious things. But dear friend, you need Christ. You know you're not perfect. You know that you're not holy. And you know that God is holy. And the biggest problem you will ever face in your existence is how to reconcile that problem. And what Christianity is all about is that righteousness has been achieved by somebody else for me and for all who put their faith in him. God provides what you need It's somewhat serendipitous that the promo that I created for Sproul's show would be next in my rotation, since R.C. shares the view Didi and I will be promoting today. In fact, he wrote a book upon which I'll be relying heavily in the interview, and which was instrumental in the development of my understanding of Bible prophecy. But whether you share our view or not, Sproul is, in my opinion, one of the greatest theologians, teachers, and apologists out there, and I highly recommend his ministry and podcast. Check them out and register to listen for free at www.ligonier.org. That's L-I-G-O-N-I-E-R dot org. With that, let's move into today's interview. It's the end of the world. My guest today is my friend, Didi Warren, creator of the Preterist blog and host of the Preterist podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today, Dee. Dee.
1: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: No problem. Uh, now, I, I should say in the interest of full disclosure that I'm recording this interview and will be producing the episode on a PC. Are you sure that you still want to go through with this?
1: <laughs> well, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I figured I should give you an opportunity to back out.
1: I think the quality of the content will make up for the deficiencies in the hardware.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> and I should also warn you, since it was guest hosting your podcast that convinced me to start my own, um, those who don't like my show have you to blame, so you might be getting some hate mail. So <laughs> you'd be expecting that. Um, now before we get into t- today's topic, if you, if you don't mind, I'd love it if you'd share your testimony with us. I mean, were you pretty much always a Christian? And if not, what led to your belief and how is your life different today?
1: Well um no I haven't always been a Christian. We were kind of raised like American Christian, you know. You just you're not Jewish so you're Christian basically. <laughs> um intended Catholic church for a while but you know there wasn't really any true faith in the house. Um I became a Christian at age 29 and what's that now? I lose track. 3 or 4 14. years ago? Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> uh, 4 years from now. No, so about 14 years ago and my life is completely completely different i mean i was uh like younger i i was in a death metal band and mm. had a mohawk and you know just all that stupid crazy stuff and you know had my stint with you know being into the occult being into paganism you know all that um but you know i really have you know direction now mm. which is which is which is nice so so i've been a christian about about 14 years
0: what led to the change?
1: Uh, um, it was really, you know, when I, th- this is somewhat of a tangent, which you know that I do. Um, when I look back at my own conversion experience, it, it kind of, um, it, it, to me, it's almost like a, a proof case for Calvinism. <laughs> <So> I <like, laughs> that sometimes, though I have switched to that point of view, but. Congratulations. You know, uh, you're (laughs) you're welcome. Well, I I figured out that um I was pretty much functionally one already, just the way I viewed witnessing and things like that. But my um my mom was very very sick, and she was on her on her deathbed, and she had just recently started going to church, and was pestering me to go. And Mm. no, that just wasn't going to happen. And when we knew she didn't have much time. I just wanted to make her happy. Mm. So, um, you know, I told her when we were at the hospital, went on a Saturday night that I was going to go to her church the next morning. And, you know, she expressed happiness about that in the very few ways she could, cause she was hooked up to a respirator. You know, it was really terrible. Yeah. Um, and within hours of me telling her that she died. Wow. And I just have really, uh, confidence that, she was holding out for something like that. Yeah. Um, so I actually didn't go that Sunday because obviously you're making all the arrangements and things like that. But the next Sunday I did and I think it was two Sundays later, it was February 7th and I think my mom died on a January 20th. So, and that that's when it was just one moment. I was like, Oh, you gotta be kidding me. And then the next moment I just had a complete change of heart. Mm. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, a lot of people will denigrate things like that saying, well, you know, you were looking for something, being in grief over your mother's death. But you want to know, truthfully, I don't think that can fly in my case because I I trust God to have done the right thing with it, will do the right thing with everybody. But I'm not positive my mother's in heaven. Mm. I know the way she was living right before she uh She got sick and she, you know, still had some issues. Now, of course, she would would have been a new Christian, but I didn't grasp onto this for some kind of hope that I'm going to see my mother again. That wasn't the reason I do hope I do. But I have to tell you, I don't have a confidence of that at all. I don't I don't know. Right. I know God will be just and that's just the way, you know, it's going to be.
0: Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing that with us. Um the topic we're discussing today, as you know, is eschatology. And normally, I would follow up with a question I just asked you with um, asking you, uh, how you became interested in the topic we're discussing, but I want to postpone that until later in the interview because of how I know that you're at least you know in <laughs> part going to answer that. So in the meantime, um, let's start by defining eschatology for my listeners. I probably don't have the same um, level of, uh, I don't know, scholarship in my listenership that you do. So what is eschatology, and, and what kinds of questions do we uh, seek to uh, answer when we study eschatology?
1: Well, eschatology is the study of last things, so, but I really don't like that definition, but that's pretty much the definition it is. So, it's it's the study of prophecies in the Bible that deal with the future and the consummation. Um so with that definition though, people kind of push what eschatology is as to something that's that's yet to happen. But I but I see the entire Bible a, a, as um eschatological. Mm. So, but typically, you know, it's talking about the great, you know, what are your views on the great tribulation? What are your views on the second coming of Christ? You know, do you believe in a millennium? Those are all eschatological issues traditionally.
0: I see. And this would probably also include things like the Antichrist and, um, you know, the, the, the rapture. so-called rapture. And something. Right, exactly. Well, what do you think is the view that is probably going to be most familiar to many of those that are listening to us right now? How do most Christians, particularly Protestants in America, answer these kinds of questions?
1: Um, conservative Protestants in America, um, and I would say it's primarily America, will be premillennial dispensational, which is the type of point of view that was really popularized recently by the Left Behind series, though before that there were always, you know, some kind of, you know, Book or like you had the Schofield study Bible earlier and then in the eighties you had Hal Lindsay's late great planet earth and just those sort of things just keep it popularized. And I would say that's what the majority of conservative Protestants are by by default. That's what their church taught and they really haven't analyzed it that critically. The majority of people, of course, some people have analyzed it and that's the conclusion, hmm. but I think most people just take it as default. They don't really know there's other options.
0: Yeah. So then uh, virtually all of the eschatological questions that you and I might answer, uh, they would view those things as being in our future, the the rapture, the, the, um, the antichrist, the millennium, all these kinds of things. Is,
1: yeah, yeah, though if you're going to define the rapture as the resurrection as I do, you and I would think that's in the future too, so you got to be a little careful with that's that.
0: That's correct, yeah, I just wanted to make it clear that, I just, yeah, I just wanted to establish that many of the things that most people think of, uh, when they think of eschatology are things they think of as being in the future, um, and, you know, what I want to, what I want to talk about today is that Many listening might not realize that many of the biblical passages um, that this common view of the end times is based on are actually the very passages pointed to by skeptics as the basis for their rejection of Christianity. And if you don't mind, I'd like to read uh, a few brief quotes for you um, so we can kind of establish this as being the case. Is that all right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So... What I'm going to start with is R.C. Sproul. Um, I don't know, I- I'm sure that you've read The Last Days According to Jesus. It was really instrumental for me. And he wrote, It would not be an overstatement to suggest that the chief ground for the radical criticism of modern biblical scholarship, which has resulted in a wholesale attack on the trustworthiness of scripture, is the thesis that the gospel's record of Jesus' predictions contain glaring errors and gross inaccuracies. Now, as examples of this, um, we can look at Bertrand Russell and his Why I Am Not a Christian, uh, which I think he wrote in 1927. He said it's quite clear that Jesus believed that his second coming would happen during the lifetime of many then living. Uh, in that respect, clearly he was not so wise as some other people have been, and he was certainly not superlatively wise. Um, Albert Schweitzer, he wrote in his autobiography that Jesus really announced the immediate appearance of the celestial son of man, and his announcement was shown by subsequent events to be wrong. Uh, Bart Ehrman wrote that Jesus didn't encourage people to pursue fulfilling careers, make a good living, and work for a just society for the long haul. For him, there wasn't going to be a long haul. The end of the world as we know it was already at hand. And on the website Jews for Judaism, uh, Gerald Siegel—I think is might be how you pronounce his name—I
1: think it's Siegel.
0: Siegel. Okay. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think it's Gerald Siegel.
0: Yeah. He writes that no amount of Christian theological acrobatics will ever solve the problems engendered by the historical reality that a promised imminent fulfillment made 2,000 years ago did not occur as expected by the New Testament. Now, we're going to dive into this deeply in a moment, but, but first, is there any truth to what these and other skeptics are saying? I mean, summarize for us what Jesus and his followers said that leads so many people today to reject Jesus as a false prophet.
1: Sure, and, but I want to add one thing to what you just said. Sure. I mean, that, that verse almost... Of course, now I have to preface this with my Calvinistic belief, but I felt like it almost caused me to lose my faith. It really put me through a very dark night of the soul, I guess, as you would say. Mm. Um, And there's a lot of testimonies of people, like if you go to the forum exchristian.net, that that was one of the the they call it, you know, quote unquote Bible contradictions that they just couldn't couldn't resolve. Mm. Now I forgot your oh I forgot your question <laughs> well, yeah. oh and also remember the uh, other famous quote C.S. Lewis says Matthew twenty four thirty four is the most embarrassing verse in the Bible oh wow that's a pretty strong statement so uh, let's start with that one um that that's the main verse that people will cite if they're just doing a little you know short summation of proving that Jesus was allegedly wrong in predicting his second coming mm. is after you know predicting. You know all these things that most people believe are in the future. Um, he topped it off with, most assuredly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Mm. And I, you know, I'm not a big fan of saying, well, you know, it's obvious from looking at something that that's, you know, what it means, because sometimes there's context and things to take um into consideration but i mean any fair reading of it would have to say at first blush that really does look like jesus is saying that everything he just talked about was going to happen before you know people that were then living his contemporaries all died off
0: yeah and it's not alone right i mean there can you give some other examples that that might lead to people thinking that jesus predicted his coming in the in the first century
1: well, you got Matthew um, 16, I believe it's 28, where um, he says there are some standing here today that will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Mm-hmm. And you know that's right there. If you compare Matthew 16, it's actually 27 through 28, to Luke 21 verses 31 through 32, which is the parallel to Matthew um, 34. The Luke 24. passage. 24. Yeah, okay, sorry. (laughs) So the Luke passage says, so you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Hmm. Well, that's almost a direct parallel to that Matthew 16 passage, which talks about when the kingdom of God will be seen. Right. Um, so whatever was being talked about in Matthew 34, Luke is the parallel passage to that. And then you add in. Matthew 16, and to me, the combination of verses tells us exactly, you know, the time frame that Matthew's referring to. If people don't think this generation is clear enough, I really would hope that there are some standing here who will not taste death is clear enough unless they think, you know, there's some people trotting around still, you know, from 2000 years ago.
0: Right. Yeah, and, and I think that what we're gonna see here in a minute is that uh, you know even these two or three passages we've looked at aren't alone. Um but what I want to do is take just a closer look for a few minutes and and see if maybe you and I are um being a little bit too insistent that the plain reading is what we think it is. Uh so for example, um let's let's look at Matthew twenty four, thirty-four a little more closely. Um you know, he he says, Truly I say to you this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now it seems to me that there are three common ways in which many Christians, uh, not you or I, <laughs> have tried to defend Jesus' status as a prophet uh, from attacks stemming from this passage. And the first... Um, is that some will say that this generation is actually uh, more properly a reference to that generation, You know, speaking of a generation that remains in our future. So, for example, uh, Thomas Ice says, our position is that this generation is not the generation to whom Christ is speaking, but the generation to whom the signs will become evident. And then his uh, cohort, if you want to use that word, Tim LaHaye, he writes, this is a reference to the future generation that will live to see all the signs listed in the previous verses fulfilled in their lifetime. Now, what do you make of this? Do you think that this is a legitimate way to understand Jesus' words?
1: Well, you know, maybe in isolation, it seems like it could be, but not taking the whole passage um, in context. Okay. and uh, And... Also, it just seems kind of strange that they believe that the Great Tribulation, you know, depending on which of these guys you're going to talk about, you either have seven year period of time or three and a half year period of time. I mean, that's significantly less than a generation. It just seems like an odd thing for Jesus to say to stretch something out to 40 years. That's when it happens, it's going to happen like within a few years, less Mm -hmm. than 10. So I just find that odd. But putting that aside, Jesus says, um, "All you know, the generation will not die till all these things take place." Okay. Well, one of the things that was prophesied. Has already happened. It happened in the first century. It can't happen again. By definition, it's unrepeatable. It's not one of those vague things that could happen multiple times. He was referring to the temple being destroyed, the temple that then existed, the temple that the stones, the disciples pointed to, and Jesus responded, saying, "These very stones there won't be one left upon another." Mm. Um, If the you know dispensationalists are Really gonna take the passage seriously. The new temple has to be built of the same stones. I mean, uh-huh. where do you, you that's know, if you really look closely at the passage. Jesus is very specific. There's not one stone left here that will not be left standing upon another. And, you know, so, I mean, that's, there's so many ways you can go at this. So, if you realize that one of the things predicted was the destruction of the temple then standing, can't be repeated, either all of the other things happened back then within that generation, you know, it seems like ICE agrees of the time period of a generation, or Jesus was a false prophet. Hmm. So I do not think, when you look at the whole passage of everything that was prophesied, um, that his argument holds water. I do think in isolation it could. I think that although... It may seem to us that if Jesus was referring to a future generation, he should have said that generation. I think maybe that's being a little pedantic. Um, yeah, maybe, but you know, we could probably point to some other passages where, you know, skeptics say, well, he should have said this. I mean, I'm not going to quibble over that. Uh, So if you take a look at the whole passage, you got a lot of things that can be repeated. There's always going to be earthquakes. There's always going to be wars, you know, there's always going to be false teachers. But the one thing that can only happen once it's already happened
0: right yeah i think that's i think that that makes sense and that that actually probably um might apply to this next attempt uh that some people make which is that uh generation here means race um, Schofield wrote that the Jewish race will be preserved, a promise wonderfully fulfilled to this day. And James Burton Kaufman, uh, commenting on this verse, he wrote that as regards the final judgment, generation referred to the descendants of Abraham, meaning the race of the Jews and that they would not cease as a separate people until the end of time. So how about this? Could, could this generation be better translated this race? Uh,
1: I don't believe so. And. Most of dispensational scholarship has um, moved away from that position. Uh, you won't really see the the luminaries, you know, of that point of view saying that. Most of them will take the position that that Tommy Ice did. But the the Greek word, and I know I'm probably mispronouncing it, and I don't care, is genia. <laughs> the, um, that's generation. Mm. The Greek word for race is um, genos, genos, genos right? Yeah. So. It's two completely different words. And I have a habit of collecting Bible difficulty books. I just, in dealing with skeptics and sorts of things, I just like them. I find it interesting, especially the older ones. But one that's very popular nowadays is by Gleason Archer called the Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. And it was Mm. one of the things that when i was exploring this issue that i went to to see how matthew 24:34 could be interpreted and he goes through the ones that you hear from other people but then he he says something i haven't heard anybody else say and i'm going to um i'm going to do, read the paragraph only because it's so important True. and it only recently struck me how bad this is he said Um, Perhaps it should be added that if the Olivet Discourse was delivered in Aramaic, as it probably was, then we cannot be certain that the meaning of this prediction hinged entirely on the Greek word used to translate it. Genea and genos are, after all, closely related words from the same root. The Aramaic term that Jesus himself probably used, and then he goes in here, the Syriac Peshitta uses, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. Which can mean either generation or race is susceptible to either interpretation, and thus could mean race. Now, the implication of what he said is, you know, if you're a person who believes in the um, inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, I know there's slight differences between those two views, but we're speaking generally here. Mm. We believe that it's it's inerrant in the autographs. Well, his view would lead to the fact that God couldn't inspire the correct Greek word Mm. to be used. Um, Actually, the inspiration is going to be you you would need to know what Jesus said in Aramaic. Yeah. And that's just really, really bad, especially when there was a perfectly good Greek word to use, which is genos. Yeah. You know, rather than, you know, going to a language that maybe it was equivocal. In Greek, there was a perfectly good word. And I just think the implications of that are terrible. Yeah. Because if he well, you know, if he said this in Aramaic, what else did he say in Aramaic? What else is wrong? So even the autographs aren't, you know, infallible? Bad, 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 bad Gleason Archer.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: Now, in isolation, genia can mean race, but it does not make any sense in this context. First, dispensationalists believe that the Jewish race will never pass away. But what Jesus is saying is there's something... That will pass away after all these things take place.
0: Hmm.
1: Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. The Jewish race, according to them, is going to live forever. They hmm. have separate promises, so that doesn't help at all in making a time frame right. to point to something that's going to last forever. That'll still be lasting forever before all these things take place. That makes absolutely zero sense. Yeah. But Jesus started out this discourse in Matthew twenty three. Um, I believe it's verse 36, with almost the exact same wording where he's, you know, he just, you know, totally exoriated the Pharisees and even told to them, for instance, being left desolate. It's what prompted the disciples' questions in the first. And he says to them that all these things will come upon this generation. So that this generation in Matthew 23, it really it's To me, it goes beyond credulity to say it's a different generation than Matthew 24. It, those two are the bookends of this prophecy. So if you transplant that meaning of race back into Matthew 23, you're making the Jewish race of all time guilty For crimes that happened in the first century, such as the crucifixion of Christ. And that was a very bad point of view that led to Christian atrocities against Jews. Not that they did it from the dispensational point of view, but, you know, there were people who had severe anti-Semitism that were blaming their Jewish neighbors for the death of Christ. Sure. And, but that's the logical outcome if you're going to say that this generation in this context here means race.
0: Yeah. I I will point out, though, that, um, it's not entirely absent from dispensational proponents. I mean, the the guy that you debated on Unbelievable, if I recall, actually said that the word could mean race here. So, uh, you know, there are, there are at least a few stragglers, you know, who continue to uh, hold out to this as the proper understanding of the word. Um, With
1: all due respect to Pastor Boyle, I think he was a bit out of his, out of his specialty. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, cause, and he even said that, you know, he's a, he's more into pastoral counseling and and life issues. And he's never had anyone come to him wanting to know about eschatology. Yeah. And, you know, I can respect that. So I really don't think that, you know, he's really studied this a lot. It's not where God has called him to. I'm not, you know, insulting his intelligence or anything like that. You ask me a question on something I haven't studied. I am just going to, you know, throw out things that maybe I've heard that I haven't really analyzed in great depth.
0: Yeah, sure. No, I, I understand that. Um, now, now, there is one third view, uh, one that seems really awkward to me, so I'm not so sure that I'll be able to do it justice. Um, but then again, I'm, I'm biased. <laughs> is, uh, as as R.C. Sproul explained it... Um it's a view which sees Jesus' words as referring not to a frame of time, but to a frame of mind. Um I don't know if you know what I'm getting at, but uh he, yeah. he, he quotes Herman Ritterboss, I think might be how you prena- pronounce his name, who, who wrote that, we must not att- attribute a temporal meaning to the words this generation, but must conceive of it in the unfavorable sense in which it occurs also elsewhere, vis-a-vis the people of this particular disposition and frame of mind who are who are averse to Jesus and his words. What do you, what do you think about this approach? Does this do justice to Jesus' words?
1: uh no um again if i mean if he's coming from a, a dispensationalist point of view again you're talking about if you're talking about people of a certain disposition and he's premillennialist they still believe there is evil in premillennial so people of that disposition won't pass away hmm. at that time so again the same criticism i have of race um would apply here But I debated somebody a long ago in the past, Tony Warren, and um, he the way he explained it was it's kind instead of race. Hmm. So this kind of people will not pass away till all these things take place. But premillennialism, but now now Tony Warren, excuse me, is an amillennialist, so he can he can get around that one difficulty. Hmm. Um, And going back to Matthew twenty three again, the criticisms I put against. Race again apply. Um, Jesus was condemning their specific people for specific crimes and it's not all the unregenerate that were guilty of those specific crimes. they might be guilty of other crimes sure. but I don't think we can blame our unsaved next-door neighbor for crucifying Christ right and for saying we have no king but Caesar. So it just doesn't do justice to to say, well, there's, there's going to be this kind of people. Plus it's also like, I love using this expression. It's like, wherever you go, there you are. The (laughs) passage is talking about evil people doing evil things. So Jesus says there'll still be evil people around when this thing takes place. Uh, Duh. Duh, Benny Hinn could get that right.
0: Yeah, I I agree. Well, so, you know, we could say a lot more about this passage, but I want to look at a few others. You mentioned Matthew 16 and and 28 where Jesus says, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, the implications I think are pretty clear, but some have tried to save Jesus' reputation from the skeptics by saying that he was promising uh, contemporary glimpses or manifestations of his kingdom. So, for example... Uh, William Lane sees the Mount of Transfiguration as one example fulfilling this uh, prediction, writing, The Transfiguration was a momentary but real and witnessed manifestation of Jesus' sovereign power, which pointed beyond itself to the parousia when he will come with power and glory. Uh, On the other hand, there are people like Kaufman, whom I quoted before, who sees the the promise fulfilled at Pentecost. He says the kingdom did appear on the day of Pentecost during the lives of some of Jesus' disciples, just as Jesus had said. Um, do you think that the attempts made by the likes of Lane and Kaufman's uh, are successful in vindic- vindicating Christ?
1: I wouldn't have too much of a problem with what um Kaufman said because the manifestation of the kingdom did begin then. Hmm. Um and it's continuing to now. I wouldn't have too much I wouldn't say that was the complete fulfillment of it, but I wouldn't have a problem with that. But if he's isolating it to just there and not growing from there, you know, might have to take, you know, some issue. But um Craig's no, 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 sorry. That's not
0: William Lane Craig, it's William Lane.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. That's right. Because I know William Lane Craig just did a whole thing on that I gotta get to, you know, dealing with that's on my list of things to do. Okay, but so Craig's, you know, position that it was just pointing to the transfiguration which happened a few days later, which was a glimpse of the future kingdom. Again, um, I could pretty much say, you know, a group of people standing around me probably aren't going to be dead in a couple of days.
0: Mm, right. You know,
1: Jesus was talking about an event that was far enough away that some of the people listening to him would be dead, but not so far away that everyone would be dead. Sure. So and also I don't see how Craig's interpretation deals with the part about, um, you know, Jesus meeting out judgment. Yeah. You know, that was also something that the people who were standing there um were going to see at you know, at the same time as as this, you know, big manifestation of um God's kingdom.
0: Well, sure, and and I think that both I think that both those points that you just made could be leveled against Kaufman's understanding as well. I don't see the Jews facing a lot of um uh, judgment uh, at and following Pentecost, um, you know, and, and furthermore, Pentecost was not that much longer, right, after after Jesus made this, this promise than, um, uh, than the Mount of Transfiguration was. So, so I still don't think that Kaufman's understanding really does all that much justice to the text.
1: Um, if he limits it to Pentecost, you're correct, Right. but if, if he wants to make a starting point there, there actually was the beginning of the judgment on the first century Jews that happened soon after Pentecost. That's when I believe the 70 weeks ended, um, when Paul is sent to the Gentiles, and the primary focus Um Fair enough it turns to the Gentiles um, so is because Jesus predicted that the, the the kingdom you know will be taken of you and given to a nation worthy um, of its fruits or you know I'm paraphrasing um, so I do think that the judgment started to belong to to start there and culminated in 80 seventy I think part of the problem today is we think very linearly and I don't think that mindset is demonstrated in the Bible. So you can't take a look at our position like 8070 is this big black line, you know, down the calendar of history, and everything happened there. I think that 40 year period of time is actually the event. Yeah. It's not something that happened at 5:15 on August 21st or <laughs> whatever it was of 8070. Right. It, it, it's a block of time. It's that generation.
0: Yeah. It's yeah, a
1: generational uh, block of time. So that's why I really don't have too much of a problem with Pentecost.
0: Sure. Um, unless it's left in uh, – it Unless uh, it's – Right. Yeah, exactly. If it's Pentecost only. Right. Yeah. Well – now, there, there, there are plenty of other ones that we could look at, um, but there are just a couple more that I want to, in the short time that we have today. Um, they're the ones that I think are actually some of the most challenging, not necessarily, I mean, not as much so as the two we've looked at, but more challenging than, than others. Um, and they're in Revelation. Um, now I know that, that Matthew tends to be, um, more of your focus than, than I think Revelation does. I don't see you write a lot on Revelation, but I'm sure that you're familiar with statements like, uh, Revelation 3.11, where Jesus says, I am coming quickly, or in verse, uh, verse 6 of chapter 22, where his messenger says that Jesus sent him to show John the things which was uh, which must soon take place, and uh, we see, um, you know, Jesus saying in verses seven, twelve, and twenty of chapter twenty-two that I'm coming quickly. You know, this is all over the place, and it's no wonder then that in the very first v- verse of the book, John writes that God showed him the things which must soon take place, and then two verses later says the time is near. So, uh, w- so now I've seen Christians try and vindicate Jesus and John by explaining these texts in two ways. First. In a response to a book written by Hank Hanegraaff, which you and I have read, uh, Mark Hitchcock and Thomas Ice explain what they call the imminency view. Um, so they write, it seems best to understand the timing terms in Revelation in relation to the pro- uh, prophetic viewpoint of the author and not as necessarily meaning that the events had to occur within a few years of the time Revelation was written. Since no man knows God's time schedule, the time of fulfillment is always at hand. These events are near in that they are the next events on God's prophetic calendar. So do you think that uh the time is near could merely mean it can happen at any time
1: well for a dispensationalist um that isn't the next thing on god's prophetic calendar the um you know there's still things he needs to do with the with the jewish people mm. but no i i mean the dispensationalist makes it impossible for god to ever say anything was near and mean it
0: <laughs> i mean what
1: words could he have possibly used right because according to them none of them mean that yeah and he says it in so many different ways. it's not just one verse. I mean, I think the you know he God went out of his way. you know it pretty much exhausted the Greek language and' sure. trying to make it clear plus something I've always found particularly um powerful in revelation at the end John's told not to seal up the words of this book because the time is near, yep again, a paraphrase. And a lot of people will see parallels between Daniel and Revelation, which I do. But Daniel is said he's told um, to seal up the words of the prophecy because the time wasn't near; it was for many days in the future. How you know it was put? Hmm. And Daniel was prophesying of the first, you know, Christ's birth and. You know, things like that, the time of the Messiah, and that was, depending on when you date Daniel, you know, what 600 years was considered not soon at all. Right. You know, you, you, you had to, you had to seal it up. Now we're going 2000 years. You know, I would think at least it'd need to be less than 600 if you're going to be consistent.
0: <laughs> yeah, I agree. It seems unlikely to me that um Daniel could be told that it's a long way out, speaking of 2,600 years or so, whereas John is told that it's very near, speaking of a mere 2,000 years. I mean, the, the difference is so minuscule that to think that one could be told it's near and the other far just seems ridiculous.
1: And the wording is very, any, you know, buddy, well-versed back then in the Old Testament, which being an oral culture, those people really were, much more so than we are today. Um hearing those words would immediately bring to mind Daniel. Yes. As, it's not like us who sometimes have to, you know, get out our, you know, Thompson, you know, cross reference thing and go and find all the other verses which are similar. They had they had scripture memorized, yeah. you know. Not not a couple of verses, you know, they're like <laughs> whole books. So that would immediately come to mind with that. Yeah. So I think it's, I find that pretty conclusive in combination with all the other time statements in Revelation, especially the one where he threatens the church that he'll come quickly if they don't, you know, straighten their act out. I mean, was he really threatening to destroy the whole earth if that one particular (laughs) church didn't get its act together? Right. Wow.
0: Yeah, and and actually I've got a question kind of along those lines a little bit later but um but let me talk about the second way that I've seen people try to answer the this uh nearness language in in revelation. Um some claim that the word that's used to say where, where Jesus says he's coming quickly um really is being used to mean suddenly. Um so again I'm going to quote Kaufman. He says that quickly can mean soon, but it may also mean suddenly or unexpectedly. Um, and I've seen a number of Christians argue this way. Now, do you think that they might be right? Could it be that those events foretold in Revelation were merely promised to happen suddenly in a short period of time, um, without respect to how soon they would take place after they were originally foretold?
1: Well, again for, dispen- <laughs> again, for dispensationalists, there is going to be things that happen, such as the rapture, that would make it not suddenly unexpectedly, mm. because right there everyone would know something's up. It's the rapture that's supposed to be unexpected, and we're not really talking about the rapture here in Revelation. We're talking about Great Tribulation. Have, there's a little connect there, but that one word is the only word used. There's, yes. I mean, as I said, God went out of His way to use different phrases and different expressions to make the point clear. Yeah. Well. So, um, and also, I mean, the Bible translators, even though I, I think some. You know, I, we all have problems with some translations, but it's so consistently rendered the way it is. And I, I just don't think there was some big preterist conspiracy, you know, to, <laughs> to, to translate it in these. It's an embarrassing way. Yeah, I, I think the, the mountain of evidence, uh, each thing in isolation. Yeah. OK. Yeah, that's reasonable. I, I think it'd be pretty, you know, pigheaded for me to say it wasn't. Mm. But you got to take the cumulative case.
0: Right. And we've only looked at a portion of the case. Uh, I you know, and I'll, and I'll also point out that the word quickly there can mean suddenly in the way that they've suggested, but, uh, but where it's used that way in the New Testament, it still refers to something that was about to happen. <laughs> you know? Uh, so I, I would, I would argue that it's always used to refer to something that happens, uh, very shortly after it was originally said. Um, but anyway.
1: Yeah. If, even if it has the meaning of quick, uh, of suddenly or unexpectedly, it still carries the time baggage of soon.
0: Right. Yeah, I agree. Well, so okay, we've looked at uh, we've looked at two passages from Matthew and and the sentiment is often repeated in Re- in Revelation. And and we we could point to a whole bunch of others which I'll include in my show notes so listeners can look it up and make sure that, you know, we're not smoking crack or something. But um but but you know, I think that it is clear that much of what we think remains to be fulfilled in our future um was originally promised to happen very soon after the promises were originally made. So, I guess the point that I'm getting at is that it does sound like Russell and Ehrman and some of the other skeptics we've looked at have good reason to be skeptical, at least, of Jesus, given what we typically understand those promises to refer to. But obviously, I think it's obvious anyway, you and I recognize the force of these time texts, but we don't think Jesus was a false prophet. So the, the question I have for you is, if not, why not? You're the host of the Preterist podcast. So what is preterism, and how do we preterists affirm the straightforward meaning of the time text that we've looked at while simultaneously affirming Jesus' divinity and the truth of what he promised?
1: Well, um, preterism means, well, the word preterite is almost, it's a grammatical term that means the past tense. And studying foreign language, you'll learn preterite tense and things like that. But it means past. Mm. So it as opposed to a futurist, which obviously (laughs) means future. So it means that certain events are we, that some Christians think are past, you're a preterist, and certain events that if you think they're future, you're a futurist. So a preterist is someone who generally, and now there's variations, um, and we'll get into that a little bit more because there's one variation that isn't, that's not Christian.
0: Right, I'm going to bring but, that up.
1: Yeah, but I'm I'm talking about people that you know affirm the essentials of the Christian faith, which I'm sure we're going to get into. So, you know, there's some people who will take just a preterist view of Matthew 24, talking about the Great Tribulation, and says that happened in the first century, but they don't take a preterist view of the book of Revelation, Hmm. which I don't understand. But some people (laughs) maybe will take more of an idealist or historicist view of the book of Revelation. I don't know anybody who takes a, a preterist, consistent preterist view of Matthew 24 and takes a fully futurist view of revelation. The two that would be incompatible. Mm. But preterism at times is um, very compatible with taking other passages in more of an idealist and historicist sense. Mm. I do that. I, I think those points of view have have some merit, and they their lines are blurred a little bit between between those particular views. So if We don't think Jesus was a, was a false prophet and we're saying, you know, yep, what he said was going to happen back then. Like, you know, so what's going on? What are we saying? What we're, what we're saying is Matthew 24 isn't about the second coming. Hmm. Most Christians think it is, but we say it's not. And once you assert and establish that it's not about the second coming, then the skeptics, um, criticism fails because they say that the second coming was predicted to happen in the first century. Right. And I agree with them that something was predicted to happen in the first century in that verse, but it wasn't the second coming.
0: Yeah. Well, so, uh, for example, um, a lot of people think that Matthew 24 is not just talking about Jesus' second coming, but the end of the world. Whereas you and I would say that Christ's prophecies were primarily concerned with the end of something else.
1: What would you say that that was? Well, it, in one way, it depends on how you're going to define world. The, the word that is translated world is Greek word aeon. Um, I, am I correct? Yeah, I believe so. Yes, aeon, which can mean age. Mm. Um, and it most usually means age. And there are some Bible translations which translate it as age. Um, it's not referring to the, you know, the absolute destruction of the universe. Mm. Um, the way it's used in other passages just just doesn't lead to that so it's very reasonable to translate that differently than you know that that is the end of the world and in the context jesus just talked about the destruction of the temple hmm. that prompted the disciples questions how do they get and they ask when is the end of the age um if they off if they all of a sudden we asked about the end of the entire world. I mean, whoa, slow yeah. down that horsey! See, how do you get from Jesus saying the temple's going to be destroyed and you go, oh, no, the whole world's going to, you know? Right. It just doesn't make any sense. They'd be hysterical. So obviously they were talking about the world that they knew, hmm. you know, the, the the Jewish system, the, you know, the way that, that God was dealing with, with things and with the you know the rules and regulations and the and the temple and all of that was going to be gone. Hmm. So, in one sense, yeah, it was their world. Yeah, you, know, you could use the expression. What are you in your own world? You know, when you're all you know looking off into space or something. We even use it that way today. A lot of time, ta- I'd say more than half the time we use the word "world." We don't mean the whole globe or the whole universe.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. So, so what we think Christ was concerned with was not at least in this passage, the end of the whole world, but the end of uh, an age in which uh, God centered on Israel and the Mosaic system of worship and service. Is that kind of about right? Yes. Yeah, I would agree. Well, now let's talk about coming. Um, You know, (laughs) some might be surprised to hear you say we don't believe that this passage is talking about his second coming, despite the fact that he says, you know, I will come in the glory of my angels uh, and what have you. So his followers were promised that he would come in in multiple ways, we think, not exclusively in the sense of his second advent. Can you elaborate? I mean, in what other senses do you think that Jesus promised he would come?
1: Well, we had that one verse in Revelation, which, you know, it'd be ridiculous to interpret it as a second coming. So church is misbehaving. Um, Jesus says, I'm going to come to you and, you know, and you know you're not going to be around anymore you know that church will not exist anymore mm. so obviously he's talking about judging a, a local congregation he's not talking about blowing up the universe mm. um the holy spirit comes to us again that's not you know a physical coming it's a, it's a, it's a spiritual coming but generally if you go back to the old testament and again like i said before when jesus uses a certain phraseology with the disciples Their thoughts are going to immediately go back to similar words and similar context in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament can constantly talks about the coming um, of God as just uh, it's not, you know, God physically coming down to earth. It's the judgment of God upon a particular nation. Mm -hmm. Now, then all of a sudden it makes sense. Jesus talked about the temple being destroyed What's that? That's God judging um, the, the Jewish nation, which He's done before. The temple's been destroyed before, mm. and you know those sorts of things have been described as coming in the Old Testament. So then, all of a sudden, the disciples' question makes sense. Right. You know, when will all these things take place? Um, you know, when's the time of your coming? It's when, when's the time of of your judgment?
0: Yeah. Well, so th- this kind of Highlights another difference between, um, uh, you know, our our preterism and uh, you know any brand of futurism, which is that the judgment pronounced here it was not judgment upon all of mankind, <laughs> you know, but judgment upon first century uh, apostate Israel. That they would be judged for murdering the Messiah um, since he came to them and without justification they rejected him. Is is that uh, fair to say?
1: Um, yes.
0: Yeah. And then and, I w-
1: and to and to do away with that Old Testament economy.
0: Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. And then, and then, you know, as far as the other kinds of, the other senses in which he would come, you and I are also, um, familiar with Daniel's vision in which Christ comes. And it's a, uh, it's a passage that Jesus, I think, quotes in the Olivet Discourse. But, but what, what is the coming before the Ancient of Days that Daniel is talking about there? Is that a coming to earth?
1: Well, it can't be because Daniel saw, um, one like the Son of Man coming up to the Ancient of Days. Ah. So it's, it's an upward. Movement. It's not a downward movement. So Jesus is a little bit confused. Maybe he needs some directions because he's going the wrong way. <laughs> so,
0: so would we say that what what Jesus was saying, much of what Jesus was prophesying, was that they would see the evidence of his having come before the ancient of days in heaven, right? Yeah,
1: and being given, you know, because that that was the vindication of this the way he he was saying, you know, when he said to the Samaritan woman, the time is coming when you won't worship, you know, God here on this mountain or at the temple, there was going to be a new move of God. And, you know, as long as the temple was still there, that was kind of, you know. You know, nanny, nanny, boo, boo. That ain't, that ain't happening. We're still going to the temple. <laughs> so it was the, the demonstration that he was who he said he was. He said he was going to judge the temple and he said it was going to be within that generation and it was within that generation. And this may offend some people. I don't mean it in an offensive way. I don't believe. Uh, Judaism, I'm not saying there aren't Jewish people, mm. but Judaism, the religion, because Ju- Judaism's kind of, you know, it's different from most things because you, there's an ethnic sense to it, and I'm not one of those people who don't think that there's ethnic Jews anymore. Absolutely, I think there are still ethnic Jews. But the, the way God established the religion of Judaism s- ceased to exist to 8070. What's called Judaism today is an invention of man. It's rabbinic Judaism, and I don't believe it's biblical at all, and I don't think it's really Judaism at all. So that's what 8070 did. Yeah. It completely severed um, the new covenant and from what was the old covenant.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. And, you know, so, so interestingly, whereas skeptics point toward these prophecies as evidence that he was a false prophet, if you and I are right. Jesus ends up being shown to actually have been a very accurate <laughs> prophet, uh, w- w- one accurate to the most, the utmost degree. Um Yeah,
1: that that passage to me is amazing. Once you understand it that way, and I, w- th- there's a book that I think you've read and I've read where it ta- where it's um the, it's entitled "The Destruction of Jerusalem," um as proof as divine proof that Christianity is true. Something to that effect. You'll probably put it in your show notes. I can get you the exact title. It's a tiny little booklet and it is powerful. Mm. It's in uh, public domain. It was written, I think, in the 1800s. Um, and it was a book actually, I think that was geared more towards Jewish evangelism. Mm. And it's just, I think, a very effective book that just shows how eerily accurate Jesus was.
0: Yeah. This, this was no, Nostradamus. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was very specific. And and I I often I mean there have been many times where I've pointed um either uh you know doubt, doubting Christians or, or outright unbelievers to these prophecies as um you know, evidence that he was, uh, uh, you know, a true prophet. And in fact, as you've pointed out in your, in your podcast, because of how accurate it is, many skeptics have said that it was written in, to, you know, to the original record after the events actually took place. I, I don't see any well, evidence. The of that.
1: Skeptics can't have it both ways though. Right. They can't have, they, they can't say that Jesus said his second coming, that that verse is talking about his second coming and then have Christians write it back in. Because then it means Christians were making Jesus a false prophet, and that just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It either means the destruction of the temple, or it means the second coming. And if it means the destruction of the temple, and that the Christians wrote it in later, then, okay, maybe the passage wouldn't be proof of Christianity, but then you can't use it as a biblical contradiction anymore. Yeah. Because it didn't mean the second coming, because Christians, they might think that they like to write things into scripture, but I don't think they were... They were like just so stupid they're going to write a false prophecy into subscription It makes absolutely no sense
0: yeah I agree well now one thing that might be sort of dancing around in some of our listeners minds um, is the nature or, or, or the the words that Jesus uses uh, uh, in the events that he foretells you know one one particular of, of our view is that we view end times prophecy as foretelling actual events, but by means of symbols or metaphors. Uh, Jesus said the sun would be darkened and the stars would fall from the sky. John, in Revelation, speaks of great earthquakes and the sky being unraveled like a scroll. Mountains and islands violently being moved out of place and fire and hail and blood and all this kind of stuff. Many object to our approach to prophecy on the grounds that it spiritualizes them away. Um, Thomas Ice, for example, we've referred to him before. I have a book that in which he debates Kenneth Gentry in a book called the, the Great Tribulation, Past or Future. And one of the objections that he makes to Gentry's, uh, Gentry's presentation is that he writes, Preterists resort to massive doses of symbolic interpretation in their attempt to give these a first century fulfillment. The futurist does not need to make such adjustments and continues a plain reading of the text. Preterists have to interject symbolism at key points without a textual basis. Now, I, I'm, I'm kind of um, being a little bit mocking, and maybe I shouldn't be, but, you know... <laughs> Ice isn't alone. I mean, I, I've seen Christians who are not preterists as well as non-Christian skeptics, um, criticize preterism because of this. So I guess the question I have for you is, is it, is it true that we really have no textual basis for interpreting end times prophecy in this sort of symbolic way?
1: <laughs> we, it, for one thing, one point to point out is nobody takes the passage "Quote unquote," literally, hmm. you're either going to say that the cosmic language is symbolic and the time text is literal, or you're going to really have to do some acrobatics with the time text and make the cosmic things literal. Now, which has biblical justification? Again, we we're reading the Bible sometimes, and I think ICE is guilty of that, as if it just dropped out of the sky and hit him in the head in this century, hmm. but it didn't. It, it It has a context. It has the Old Testament context and the language of the Old Testament. And that we're not talking about isolated verses. This type of language is throughout the Old Testament. So it would take the burden of proof is upon him to show that it should mean something different than it meant in literally dozens of ways in the Old Testament, and in a way that makes it consistent with the disciples' question in the first place. Mm. The disciples could not be asking about his second coming. They didn't even know he had to go. Never mind come back.
0: That's a good point that many people don't realize, yeah.
1: Yeah, there's no reason for them to be asking about a second coming. It's just, we now, looking back and we see everything, we're reading something back into their questions that they could not have intended whatsoever. But I'm going to just do a combination. These are N- by far not the only verses but I want to do this combination of verses cuz this isn't something I've done before I think together but I f- think it's it's really interesting. Okay. So, um you got Isaiah 19:1. Um God is prophesying a well, voice through his prophet against Egypt. And the prophet says, "Behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud." Wow, that sounds familiar. <laughs> and will come into Egypt. He's coming. Wow. Um, the idols of Egypt will totter at its present, and the heart of Egypt will melt in its mist. And if that was in the New Testament, I mean, I would think that, you know, are futurists going to say, you know, that that Yahweh saddled up, you know, Gabriel and rode down here on <laughs> a cloud and started kicking down, down idols? I mean, that's if you're going to take it literally. Yeah. If you're going to take it the same way you're taking Matthew 24, why not? And But it's funny, the cosmic judgment language also goes in reverse. There's cosmic blessing language. Go to Isaiah chapter 60, verses 19 through 20, where God's talking about blessing Israel. He says, the sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to Uh, you. But the Lord will be to you an everlasting light in your glory. Um, So that right there, but here's even better. Isaiah 30, verse 26. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days, and the day that the Lord binds up the bruise of the people and heals the stroke of their wound. Mm. Do you really think the sun literally going sevenfold would be a good thing?
0: No, quite the contrary Uh, from healing bruises, I think that it would cause quite the sunburn. (laughs) uh,
1: Yes. I think it SPF 10,000, anyone, you know. So you're seeing it in both directions as blessing and curse. There is no justification. The burden of proof is absolutely on the futurist. And I don't think we should allow them to shift the burden of proof because yeah. we have this already in the Old Testament. And there's multiple passages. I just love when I really understood that blessing one. I was like, you know, oh, my God. Yeah, what, what, what's going on?
0: Right. Yeah, I agree, and you know, one of the things that you point out in your podcast that that I appreciate is just that we we use symbols in the same way in our language. Um, you know, you you you, in one of your podcast episodes, you says that you said that it's the reason why when we hear that um it's raining cats and dogs outside, we don't we take umbrellas and not
1: kennels. A kennel, yeah, yeah. Now imagine someone two thousand years from now if let's say America got destroyed, you know, like 87, you know, our civilization was destroyed and they Hmm. found some of our books and they saw that expression. I mean, the literalists back then would go, wow, you know, weather conditions were really different back then. Right. You know, animals were falling from the sky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what we're doing to the Bible. We have to read it in the idioms of the day. I, I want to quote something, because I just love this, that David Chilton said, even though, you know, David Chilton slid into apostasy, but he was also at the end of a, of an illness, so... That's debatable, but his earlier works are very good and I loved when, when he said this. He said, the book of Revelation describes a woman clothed with the sun, standing on the moon and laboring in childbirth while a dragon hovers nearby to devour her trial, her child. A radically speculative interpreter might First, turn to news of the latest genetic experience to determine whether a woman's size and chemical composition might be altered sufficiently for her to be able to wear the sun. He might also check to see if the Loch Ness Monster has resurfaced uh, (laughs) recently. I mean, he goes on to say a biblical interpreter, on the other hand, would begin to ask questions. Where in the Bible does this imagery come from? Where does the Bible speak of a woman in labor and what is the significance of that context? We have to ask questions like that if we're going to understand the Bible as they would understand the Bible. Yeah.
0: No, I agree. And, you know, I, I think that we need to be, like you said, you know, I think you hinted at the fact that as preterists, we shouldn't, we shouldn't offer this up merely on the defensive. I mean, R.C. Sproul, he writes in his book that, that this Uh, hermeneutic method, where we compare scripture with scripture, is the strength of the preterist position. He says that when faced with the option of interpreting the time frame references literally, or interpreting the description of the parousia literally, the preterist chooses the former. And he points out what you've been saying, which is that there is much biblical precedent for interpreting figuratively references to astronomical upheavals and biblical prophecies of catastrophic events. On the other hand, the time frame references are not clothed in such imagery But are expressed in straightforward, ordinary language. So, yeah, I agree with you. This is this is a this is a a a weapon. You know, it's not a shield.
1: (laughs) Um, Yeah, we're not the one making excuses. It's them that are making a radical change. There's something. It's funny that I find things that i can bring into my commentary on my podcast and books that have absolutely nothing to do with eschatology (laughs) i'm reading a book right now on divorce and remarriage in the bible and the guy um the i can't remember the author's name i'll get it for you for sure It's, it's an excellent book by the way okay but he's talking about interpreting jesus's words and how the people back then would have understood it and then he brought in some modern examples on how Language changes, and he talked about, you know, today um, we have the word, you know, mentally disabled or learning challenged. When not so far, be, you know, go would have been retarded, which is now considered offensive. And before that, it was the medical term of imbecile, hmm. and it wasn't considered insulted. That's just what what people with that problem were called. Right. Now, uh, during that same period of time, the word gay did not mean what it means today. So he said, if we took a statement from back then that said, isn't it wonderful that almost all imbeciles are gay (laughs) and brought it to today, people would be like, you know, slathering at the mouth when all he, a person back then would have meant that people that, you know, had some mental deficiencies were generally very happy people. Yeah. That's all that would have meant. It would have been a compliment rather than something, you know, that was trying to disparage, you know, people of certain orientations. Sure. And that happened within a couple generations.
0: Yeah, we're talking about 2,000 years. change
1: can happen fast.
0: Yeah. At this point, we had talked for nearly an hour, and we talked for nearly an hour longer. So uh, go take a break, come back, and then listen to episode 18, in which we move on to discuss hyperpreterism, Israel, and then offer up our closing thoughts. Until then...